0: Welcome to a special edition of Green Minds, a podcast of the Southeast Sustainability Directors Network on Pioneer Practitioners in Regenerative Design. This is the second episode of a three-part series that explores organizations supported by the Candida Fund, an Atlanta-based foundation that invests in transformative leadership and ideas and creating a more just and equitable world. I'm Catherine Mercy baggett and Laurel Creech was my co-host. This episode features two organizations. The first one is the Southface Institute, where Laurel speaks with James Marlowe, president, and Gretchen Gigley, who was the Good Use Program director at the time of the interview. Southface is one of the oldest organizations in the southeast that focuses on sustainability. It offers expertise in building technology and policy, among many other fields connecting to regenerative design. As James mentions in the interview, systems thinking is at the core of the institute's approach. The second interview in this episode is with Sam Ruark of the Green Build Alliance, an organization based in Asheville, North Carolina, that focuses on education and outreach to expand the green building industry in a similar fashion to the South Face Institute. Sam introduces us to the Green Build Alliance work and how the Candida Fund helped build capacity to advance their mission. We also discuss the impacts of the housing market on the adoption of voluntary green building strategies. And he shares his personal experience living in Echo Village. Let's begin with James Marlowe and Gretchen Gigley.
1: Well, I'm Laurel Creech and co host of this podcast. I'm excited to have some two very special guests with me from the South Face Institute. I would like to give a very warm welcome to James Marlowe, president, and Gretchen Gigley, program director for Good Use. How are you both doing today?
2: Great. Great to see um, you, I'm Laurel.
3: Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Good. Well, thank you for taking time to be with me. Um, I'm excited to have this conversation with you. I have been familiar with South Face for many, many years for my work in sustainability, which is now a quarter of a decade. Um, And South Face is one of those organizations that is very well respected and uh, just a remarkable team, staff, and impact that you all are making. So congratulations on on being such a, a fantastic thing for our region. We really, really appreciate it and respect all the great work you're doing. So let's go ahead and get started first with telling us about what South Face is all about. What does South Face Institute do?
3: Well, South Face is a multifaceted organization. We do work in sustainability, which is a very broad categorization. We do work in energy. We do work in the built environment. Uh, We do work with uh, electric and alternative transportation. Uh, We work to strengthen and improve and create healthy, happy, high-performance homes, businesses, schools, nonprofits, and communities.
1: And I know South Face has been around for how many years now?
3: We're a 44-year-old organization.
1: I knew it was a while. 44 years is significant. So, James, can you share a little bit about how the organization has evolved over the years?
3: Well, um, I just had lunch uh, with Dennis Creech, one of the co-founders. They started really working around solar energy uh, in 1978. So um, they began looking at um, alternate technologies and how you could create uh, what became um, called sustainability, but working to improve the building envelope, to improve uh, heating and air conditioning technologies, water conservation technologies. Uh, Recycling and composting, and now what would be called circularity uh, in products. So, uh, look, really, always working as a thought leader, uh, always working as an innovator, a convener, a connector, and a resource. And um, I think you see uh, across uh, Atlanta, particularly in the Southeast, uh, South faces footprints and impact uh, in many, many areas of the building um, trade building environment, home building arena, uh, and other areas.
1: And speaking of Dennis Creech, uh, the Candida fund is, uh, another great entity that has uh, been a great partner for many organizations across the Southeast region. And what has been your relationship with the Candida fund?
3: Well, um, I was having lunch with them today, and it was the first time I had met Dana and Barry, um, uh, personally, but, um, we are so at south face are so appreciative of their leadership and their long-term partnership and their investment and i think that's best described uh, in the good use program so i might let gretchen uh, talk a little bit about good use um you know my words for candida is 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 a heartfelt gratitude uh, but just how impressed i am with the impact they've created we've worked with over 450 nonprofits. And it just—it's a—it's a lasting investment and gift that keeps on giving. So, uh, Gretchen, why don't why don't you add a few comments?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, Candida has um, always been such a, a thought leader in sustainability and um, saw a gap with nonprofits, and that was in two thousand eight, and came up with this concept with the community foundation. And South Face was lucky to be part of that program um in 2018 we the program was fully passed to South Face. so we now through that through that uh, transition uh, have been able to kind of re-envision and, uh, the program a bit and um, take this incredibly impactful program to 27 states across the, the um, U.S. Um, we work with theaters, food banks, Uh, any 501c3 across the nation, like James said, over 450 nonprofits now, um, resulting in $16.2 million in utility savings. So think of what those dollars can do for these nonprofits. And my favorite part is to translate those numbers into community impact, which this program is really just so brilliant in in doing. And so things like uh, with our work with food banks being able to Um, feed um, 1.7 million additional meals per year or um, you know in our boys and girls club partners um, we have many that are able to pay for all of their to expand into uh, feeding their participants or their partners three meals a day their their children and um, or covering the cost for kids that can't afford to come there completely through the savings through this program so Uh, The translation to community impact, how building impacts the organization's ability to further their mission is really the gift of this program.
1: Thank you, Gretchen. Thank you for sharing more Mm -hmm. information about the Good Use program. Now I'd like to transition to regenerative design. So how do you define regenerative design?
3: Well, I, I personally think regenerative design is a misunderstood term and one that often should be accompanied um, with a a definition, at South Face, we consider ourselves system thinkers. We we see how the building envelope, how uh, efficient, healthy envelopes, daylighting, walkability in a community, um, how it all fits together. That's often described as regenerative in nature, uh, but in general, most of the audiences that I talk with do, are not familiar with that term. They don't use that term, uh, particularly if I'm you know, speaking at a Rotary Club in Dalton, Georgia, or if I'm traveling around the state. Uh, so I really try to you know, meet the audience with language that they understand. I think more and more people do understand sustainability. So I find that as a, a more accessible term. But uh, clearly, at South Face, we believe in comprehensive system thinking. Um, As a student of ecology, we're always trying to find out how we fit into our environment, as how we are part of the environment, not uh, above our environment, but how we use design thinking in our selection of materials. Uh, We're doing research right now around mass timber buildings. We live in a region uh, of timber forest, and the timber industry is one of our largest in Georgia and in the southeast how do we use that as a carbon sink? How do we source locally? And then how do we repurpose that at end of life for other uses? So how we look at the life cycle costing, the life cycle analysis, and the true life cycle costing and maintenance of of everything that we're doing.
1: So you had touched on a little bit about South Face and the work around regenerative design. Can you expand a little bit about um, some examples of some projects that South Face has been involved in that is a perfect example of regenerative design.
3: The Candida building, um, which is a living building on the Georgia Tech campus. uh, And it's certainly uh, a showcase, uh, a world-class showcase that shows a building that produces more energy than it consumes. It it produces more water uh, for the landscape and for other areas. It is a building that takes advantage of local sourcing of materials. It takes advantage of reuse of materials. It takes advantage of daylighting. Uh, it takes advantage of you know air quality assessment. It is uh, in a park-like environment in the back with a berm, and they look at water um, interaction on site and what the water does. So you know water, air quality, transportation, uh, indoor air quality. All of these are things that that go into. Um, you know, quality design thinking, re- regenerative design—if you choose to use that term—but uh, the Candida building is a great example. Um, Gretchen, you might want to talk about the first net-zero food bank.
2: Yeah, that one is uh, is still in process, but we started with them when their um, you know energy bills equated to a thousand dollars, you know, thousands of dollars a month, and um, they've been able to through HVAC updates. Uh, You know, lighting and basic building upgrades uh, cut that in more than a half, and now they're ready for solar. So they're pursuing 100 percent solar right now. And um, we're grateful to be able to continue down that that um, that path with them. But we did support and um, work with the first net zero school in Georgia. It's the second in the southeast, um, the SAE school. Um, and that was very exciting. And we also have a school now, Acton Academy, that's pursuing the living building challenge. And that's down in um, Serenby. Um, and so we're working through with our design consulting services and through good use with that school to, to guide that process. So it's a different, I would say, in the nonprofit sector, uh, we're having a lot of different conversations with our nonprofits who are looking at more innovation carbon neutral neutrality, net zero, uh, 100% solar, things like that, which is very exciting.
1: What trends are you seeing around regenerative design and what are you hoping to learn from the convening uh, with the Candida Fund later this fall?
3: Well, you know, my personal goal is, and and I hope this is a South-based goal, is that that we learn something every day. And so um, I've been using a phrase lately that less and better, so as we think about design, how do we incorporate design to have a lighter footprint, uh, to have less of a need for maintenance, to look at buildings that last a very long time and that require minimal maintenance. Uh, solar is a minimal maintenance technology. You know, If we look at water-saving devices, how do we reduce um, and have a lighter footprint in our communities, but also more connectivity? How do we have You know trails like the Beltline. How do we have um, access for cycling and e-bikes? We're a huge fan of mobility, so when we think of electric vehicles and alternative fuel vehicles, uh, that we think about reducing our environmental impact, reducing our carbon impact, but also increasing our quality of life and creating access uh, for everyone everywhere in our community. So in in Atlanta, uh, we often talk about the map and the map. Uh, often displays a wealthier, better-educated, longer lifespan north side of our city and a, a, a less income-oriented, lower uh, level of educational opportunity in the south. And and we want to be uh, at least a small part in making that better and making this work for everyone everywhere.
1: Do you see any barriers to adopt, adoption or opportunities
3: Well, um, there are always barriers around um, existing um, architects and and building trade professionals that just want to do things the way they've been doing them. So um, if we do have an enemy at South Face, it is the status quo. So we want to work to more innovation, more innovative materials, um, more innovative design and more um, technology um, to make things uh, more equitable and more accessible for everyone at every income level.
1: Well, Atlanta surely is a leader in regenerative design in the Southeast. The the remarkable work that is being done throughout the corridor is important, Uh, but I am hoping that the Southeast continues to follow suit with the work that's being done in Atlanta and the work that's being done with South Face and Candida.
3: Well, we do hope to expand our impact more geographically. Um, As Gretchen said, we've done uh, good use projects in 27 states. That's our most extensive uh, program nationally. Uh, but we do have an office in Sarasota, Florida. Uh, so we're working with them. Uh, they have particular interest around electric transportation, uh, around water issues. Uh, everyone in Sarasota loves the water and they want to be protective of that uh, terrific uh, resource and asset that they have. Uh, but we'd love to be uh, doing more regional work and more statewide work, and, and also, you know, doing more rural work. How do we have programming uh, and offerings that can help? Uh, some of that is more online content. So regardless of where you live, you might have access to the same rich content that if you lived uh, here in, in Metro Atlanta, where we host most of our live events, but we do want to have uh, more of a, a geographic impact.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you so much both Gretchen and James for your time today and talking about the great work with South Face and the conversation around regenerative design. Um, I am very confident that the conversation will become more and more robust and more and more common and vital to our community. So thank you for your time.
3: Laurel, thank you so much. Thank you for hosting today.
1: Thanks so much, Laurel. Great to be with you today.
0: That was James Marlowe and Gretchen Gigley of the South Face Institute. You are still listening to Green Minds, a podcast of the Southeast Sustainability Directors Network. And this is a special edition on organizations supported by the Candida Fund. Now, let's move on to the Green Build Alliance and talk to Sam Ruark. Hello, Sam. It's a pleasure to have you today. As a starter, could you introduce yourself?
4: Sure, I'm Sam Ruark and I've been executive director for Green Boats Alliance for about seven years. And I've worked in the field of sustainability for local governments, small businesses and nonprofits since 1998. And I currently live near Asheville, North Carolina in an eco-village called Earth Haven, which is a living laboratory of sustainability. So it's an off the grid eco-village and it's innovative in terms of regenerative agriculture, building systems, energy systems, governance, education, and many other forms. You have a deep personal and professional passion for sustainability. And I have basically since I left college.
0: What can you tell us about the Green Built Alliance and specifically your contribution?
4: Our organization has been going for 21 years now. And we serve the Asheville and Buckham County area in North Carolina. We started out as an organization focused primarily on educating building professionals about green building and sustainability, and we helped create a statewide program. It was our first green building certification. It was actually modeled after EarthCraft, based in Atlanta. And so we basically took that rating system and evolved it a little bit for our climate and our topography and the mountain. It shares about 90, 95% of the same so, you know, types of criteria as EarthCraft has, and that program has evolved through the years. We have certified about 2,700 single family residential homes as Greenbelt Homes. We've also done the LEED projects as well. But most of our folks in the area focus on, you know, Greenbelt Homes as a certification method. That program now includes some regenerative aspects and some Net Zero Home, Net Zero Energy Home criteria as well. And we have about 90 builders in our region that built to the certification. Um, And we find that the builders actually push it more than the clients are asking for it. So it's great that we have these builders that are really committed to to green building. So we have our Green Built Homes program. We also, just in the past three years, we've added something called the Blue Horizons Project, which is a community collaboration to set the course for clean energy. Both the city of Asheville and Buncombe County have made aggressive um, clean energy goals, essentially saying we're going to be 100% renewable by 2042. Basically, within the next 20 years, we're looking at how do we transition from 5% renewables to 100%. So it's a massive change, and so we're we have we, we host um, different programs and conversations, um, and and bring experts together to talk about how do we meet that goal. And then we also do a program called Energy Savers Network, which is a low-income weatherization program funded by the city and the county and and a little bit from foundation dollars and private donors as well. And we have upgraded over 850 mobile homes and single-family homes with weatherization work. And while I started out doing basic weatherization work, now we've added home repair and heating repair and replacement, and we actually just got some money through the coronavirus recovery uh, funding to do low-income solar energy systems too. So we pay 100% of the cost to put PV systems on these families that couldn't afford it otherwise. And then the last thing I'll mention is we also do something called Appalachian Offsets, which is a carbon offset program. And we ask folks, both individuals and businesses, to calculate their carbon footprint. And then you can pay into a fund to take that money and do solar energy systems for local schools and nonprofits. So we raised enough money for the past few years to do a, a 300 kilowatt solar system for a local public school. And then we're in the process of raising money for the United Way building in downtown Asheville. Um, so this is a volunteer program, but it's a way for people to essentially take responsibility for their carbon footprint and then pay to a fund that helps these organizations like schools and nonprofits be able to, you know utilize their funding for other things than just paying their energy bill and it also helps them reduce their carbon footprint
2: as well
0: that's a very wide portfolio of activities and programs uh, surely you're not the only one at the green belt alliance at least i hope you are not alone. yeah
4: that's right that's right we yeah we have an awesome team right now we have 11 staff and nine contractors when I started seven years ago. There were um, two full-time and one part-time person, and now we've gone, grown to essentially eleven full-time people. Folks that are working on the various aspects of what I mentioned: Greenbelt Homes, Appalachian Offsets, Energy Service Network, and Blue Horizons Project. We have program staff essentially running those various programs, and we have the the folks that are our contractors essentially supporting those programs in different ways, uh, whether or not that's fundraising or some you know data, data stuff or program. Um, you know looking forward in the future or some measurement verification work things like that so um, events etc we, we rely on a lot of people and then of course we have a board of directors of 12 people and that's a fantastic group of people and then we uh, have some called blue horizon project community council so yeah the, you know our, our reach and our scope has really grown uh, over the past few years and our, our impact is really uh, magnified as well during that time
0: and yeah, that's excellent growth over the past two decades
4: that's right we've been around 21 years up until 2016 we're about the same size in 2016 we started growing uh, pretty rapidly
0: that also echoes a desire to to really make improvements like you were saying with that local government goal In terms of regenerative design specifically, where do you see the Greenbelt Alliance position? What do you think the Greenbelt Alliance role is? We were part of uh, the Living Building Challenge Collaborative for
4: several years. We hosted conversations and education related to that. We were in the process of putting together a design competition um for regenerative design building here we didn't actually have a specific building in mind but we had an opportunity uh, present itself like let's look at what we can do let's invite universities to do regenerative design for buildings and then the pandemic hit so we didn't follow through on that and then you know we've been doing green building certification for so long and then that checklist is 11 pages and of course there's energy site into air quality materials and water are you know those uh, you know, comprehensive way of looking at green building? Our Green Homes rating system now is in its third version. Through the support of the Candida Fund, we were able to bring together key experts and sustainability in the community and look at how do we involve our rating system to add regenerative components and have regenerative track to it. Because we already have you know certified silver and gold and platinum and net zero energy, we want to add this regenerative component as well. So we've updated our rating system to be able to include that based on the input of experts in the community and then also research of other people in the the United States and what they're doing to support regenerative design as well. And Over the past two years, we've been doing workshops related to different elements of regenerative design. So whether that's net zero energy or net zero water, sustainable sites, or the next level of indoor air quality. Those sort of pieces we've been, you know, educating our community about, like, what does it mean to do these things? How do you actually follow through on them? Where do you find contractors who can do it? Where do you find materials? What are some other things to consider when you're looking at re-design? But kind of like done that two-pronged approach, education and updating our Greenbelt our Homes checklist.
0: Asheville is really uh, a leader, I feel, in terms of sustainability. But over your 25 years of involvement in sustainability, are you seeing some trends in the Southeast um, towards sustainability, but also regenerative design?
4: The Living Building Challenge really helped us understand what regenerative design is, take it from concept to reality. The Candida building at Georgia Tech, for instance, was, you know, going there and being able to see like, okay, here's a project, and this is actually how they put it together, and this is you know, all the different components of it is really inspiring. Going to that conference a couple of years ago to see that building and understand it and, and have people from throughout the Southeast come was really important for the movement toward regenerative design. I would say it's still, uh, it's still pretty niche in some ways. Out of the 90 builders that we have, you know, the Building Direct Greenville Home Certification, there there are several that are building toward net zero energy. We have about 61 Net there are energy certified homes in the region, but the full regenerative portion of our checklist has no one's done that yet. We have one builder who's interested in learning how to do it. And has kind of gone through all the education and it's like taking the steps to, to make it happen. But we're, we're kind of limited on one major piece, which is the net zero water. Desert water is difficult to come by um, in terms of because of health code standards and our region also, it's, it's pretty water rich. The difference between here in Arizona is Arizona, a lot, lot less rainfall, pulling water from the Colorado River. So taking water from rainwater catchment and then plumbing into the house is a, a no-brainer. Here in the Southeast, we're a little behind that time, I think, because we have a lot of rainfall. And, you know, there's access to, to water from wells and reservoirs and springs and things like that. And we have six inches of rainfall per year where we are. The push for net zero water hasn't been as great as other places in the country, especially out. And I'll say, you know, there is, by elevating the conversation around reserve design, it's helping more and more of the builders and design professionals understand the holistic nature of buildings and how do we, getting, even having them understand the concept of like, How can a building not just be less bad for the environment, but actually how can we leave a positive ecological footprint through our buildings, through our human infrastructure that not only just models it, but actually gives back to to the infrastructure of humans and also to the ecology as well.
0: What would you say is the biggest barrier to the implementation of regenerative design in our area? I would say...
4: Two things, one is I'll say the technical piece and then the second is the economic piece. The first, the technical piece, like I mentioned, the net zero water is um, has been difficult for us to kind of overcome that hurdle. You know, we've been able to like push on the net zero energy side and the advanced indoor air quality side and, and the sites and the materials, but the water, that's been a barrier. And in some ways it's, it's okay. And we're kind of looking at ways to overcome that. And we also realize we're in a pretty water abundant place. That's one of the reasons why breweries are moving to Asheville because we have, you know, we have a lot of water here um, for now, hopefully that will continue. Um, who knows with climate change, how things will evolve, but for now we're pretty good on water. So, and we still need to conserve water as best we can. And we need to limit massive irrigation projects and things like that. I'll say that the second thing is the, the economic piece housing demand is so high in our region in Asheville in the Southeast with many people moving here and things like that. So as fast as a builder can build a building, they're selling it. And they're selling it for a lot more than it was even two years ago, three years ago. And so therefore their incentive to build to this specification is lower. I mean, they, they see a lot of them see the value in terms of like the ecological perspective, but the economics of adding, two plumbing systems in the house in order to be able to handle gray water, and handle, you know, rainwater catchment or you know, advanced materials FSC certified lumber, for instance, you know, lumber is already so expensive as it is now FSC certified lumber is or sustainable harvest, sustainable harvesting lumber is even at more of a premium. So when they're there making that choice, okay, how am I going to frame this house or this building? They look at the wood prices. Uh, I can just, one way or the other, so we see contractors cutting the corners on things like some things like materials because material costs are not so high, supply chain issues, and just the economics of the value of housing is here so high. There's been studies that have shown that green built homes and lead homes sell for more, like four to five percent more than a code built home, but it only costs one to three percent more to build green built homes versus code built. So. The value is there, especially in times when it is a buyer's market. Right now or a seller's market. So therefore the economic piece of the generating design still has a hurdles to overcome. So we're kind of relying on people who are kind of innovators and pioneers to kind of keep pushing it forward because they want to see how far they can evolve it. And fortunately, you know, our Greenville Homes rating system and others like EarthCraft and LEED, somebody like that have helped evolve the building code in many areas. Being able to show things like mechanical ventilation or energy recovery systems and heat pump water heaters and things like that work well will, you know, helps the code evolve. And so we're, we're hoping that that is another piece that will, that will kind of come from this movement as the code will become more and more stringent and more and more focused on green building and ecological stewardship.
0: Going back to the cost, I, I'm also thinking that it's not easy for everybody to afford a higher mortgage, knowing that they will have some savings along the life of their house, but there's that upfront cost and, and getting that initial mortgage might not be accessible to everybody.
4: Right. And then there's, there's a piece too of the appraiser market too. So appraisers are the folks that set the value for homes and determine how much someone can borrow to be able to buy that home. And many appraisers now, there is a green addendum form in the state of North Carolina around things, green features. However, many appraisers still don't understand what passive solar is. They still don't understand the value of PV or heat pump water heaters or advanced insulation, things like that. And so, you know, we have done classes for our realtors to educate them. And yet and yet the appraisers are still a group of people that really need to understand the value of these things in order to be able to show like the value is higher, but therefore you can borrow more money because the expenses are gonna be lower. There's no lower, you know, operational and energy cost, water costs, things like that. That factors in as well.
0: Right. There's a, a systemic change that needs to happen here. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the Candida building at Georgia Tech. Are there other examples that you can think of that are really inspiring and that are at the forefront of regenerative design in the Southeast?
4: I think that might be the only living building in the Southeast. However, I imagine there are other, I know the Chesapeake Bay Foundation has a really innovative building in Maryland. You know, they kind of built that around the Bay and they use natural cooling and things like that. and. There's many LEED certified buildings and many homes. There's a lot of, you know, there's being more and more single-family residential homes being built to higher Greenville Homes Platinum level and a net zero. So those are really exciting buildings to see come through. To to classify them as fully regenerative, we're not quite there yet. But I, I do see more and more homes that are being built. We're also evolving in ways to try to get more multifamily Buildings certified. And we were fortunate to work with a local developer called Mountain Housing Opportunities. And they've used different types of green building systems. They used our green building homes rating system. They use LEED. They use Green Enterprise as well. They're a fascinating organization where they're, you know, they're a nonprofit housing developer and yet they are kind of pushing the envelope on green building within multifamily affordable housing projects. And so we were just in a conversation with them last week about some of the advanced measures that we're talking about, how to incorporate those in some of their new projects that they're doing, how can they afford those and use the financing available to them to, to make it worthwhile because many of these projects they'll actually own and operate for, you know the next 20 to 30 years and more. And so they see the value of making it the best building they can. So that's, that's one area where we're, we're trying to innovate and, we um, have conversations with like, the city of Asheville, for instance, get them inspired to like get us in front of developers so they can talk about regenerative design, green buildings and when people come to Asheville, because there's many multifamily housing projects being built here. So when these out of, out of the area, developers come in, they understand the value of what we're trying to teach and they, they want to incorporate some of those practices in the buildings.
0: From something that you mentioned at the beginning, it sounds like you are in a very interesting location and that you are yourself experiencing the benefits of regenerative design. Could you expand a little bit on that concept of eco-village?
4: Yeah, Earth think eco-village has been around since 27 years. The home I'm living in is passive solar, it's built from trees that are on from the land here right outside the window where there's now a farm so basically they cleared a field and then harvested and milled the lumber to build this house and a barn and another structure on the land as well passive solar really advanced in terms of insulation use solar hot water use pv for power and then the water is all spring water too So we're fortunate that on on this 329 acre eco-village, we have 12 springs and then the springs essentially channel water to all the buildings. Um, There's 115 people living here now, you know, everyone from like a a one month old baby to to several people in their eighties, wide spectrum of of ages and occupations and different experiences. And it's, it's really innovative place. And it, it, essentially started with a group of people who wanted to create a Living Laboratory of Sustainability. They wanted to be open to the public so people can learn about the, the types of things that we're doing here, not only with our building systems, but also our agricultural systems and our consensus governance process, the village school that's here and um, the different types of programs that we do. So we, we actually host lots of different events here so people can come. Be here like Earth Haven Experience. We can come here, stay here for a week, get a sense of what it's like, tour several buildings here and, and get us do some work as well, and get a feel for like what it's like to be an eco-village.
0: Well, I, I would say that's definitely a a nice success story that's worth highlighting.
4: Yeah. And you know, just think about the neighborhood I'm in. We are on a microgrid as well. So we have, you know, there's four different buildings on the same PV system. And then like the, in the home I'm in, you know, I guess it could be considered regenerative in the sense of like all the land and carbon footprint flow. And the only heating source I have in the house is um, besides the passive solar is a wood stove and it's a wood cook stove, but where my home in Candler just in the same region, just only 40 minutes away I was living in before moving here, that home has a six kilowatt PV system on it. And still, the electric bill in the winter was like over $200 because the baseboard heating system. And now here I am living in this you know, passive solar house, and I'll use two thirds of a quart of wood per winter. And basically, the sun's shining, I don't need any extra heat. All the heat comes from the sun and you know, it's absorbed in the thermal mass of the building, radiates it at night. So where I, you know, I can go several days without having any fire or anything like that. And I will, it'll be 20 degrees outside and still be 65, 68 inside the house, um, because of the warmth of the sun comes in for home. And, you know, it's interesting because I don't know how many buildings are built with passive solar in our country, but I imagine it's probably less than 1%. So it's, it's a massive way to save a lot on, on our heating cost which is the number one cost for energy cost for buildings in our region is heating we just oriented toward the equator face the sun then we would save a lot of money and a lot of fossil fuels
0: i bet many of our listeners are very envious of what you get to to experience that sounds fantastic
4: very cool and there's also you know there's my neighbor here grows lots of food you know, I have local food uh, access as well. and But to, yeah, to be able to take a bath and spring water heated by the sun, it's really a beautiful
0: experience. That's quite unusual, at least for now. Hopefully opportunities <laughs> will grow. Yeah. Is there anything that you would uh, like to mention before we close?
4: Yeah, I'll just say that our work as a nonprofit really wouldn't be possible without the support of people like the Candida Fund the city of Asheville and Buncombe County. Those three entities have really helped us grow as an organization. You know, it's great to be able to have philanthropic support and then also the support from the local government. And the local governments here, you know, we're, we're fortunate to live in, a, in an innovative place with progressive political leaders who see the value in sustainability and want to essentially have a future for, for the seven generations to come. So... We've been able to like, we have these contracts with both local governments here, and they they want to fund weatherization work and solar for low-income families. And they see that like, you know, we have to transition off fossil fuels. So they're they're realizing their partnerships in the community really help support this work. So them funding us to do this work has been has been great for our organization. And then folks like Candida have both funded us in relationship to regenerative design. And also in our education of building professionals and our work with affordable housing. And they also helped us in the organization to develop some opportunities for fundraising from private donors too. Um, I just want to appreciate their understanding of the holistic nature of what it takes to be a nonprofit and support us through this, this big growth time that we really need to be able to step up to be able to address the climate crisis that we're in. So Really, only it's uh, only through the resources that are available, we'll be able to do the things that will make a big impact there.
0: Thank you, Sam, for giving us a quick tour of Greenbelt Alliance, your work, and also where you live. And we really appreciate your time today.
4: Thank you very much for having me, Catherine. Appreciate you.
0: Thank you for listening to the second episode of a three-part series on regenerative design. In our upcoming and concluding episode, we talk with the leadership of the Sustainability Institute based in Charleston, South Carolina, green spaces from Chattanooga, Tennessee, and our very own Southeast Sustainability Directors Network. I want to extend my warmest and best wishes to my co-host, Laurel Creech, who left her position with the City of Nashville to join the ranks of the Nature Conservancy.